0: Well, we hope that uh, your new year has begun well. And as the new year has begun, we're going to be beginning a new book as well, in the book of Ephesians. So if you'll open your Bibles so the book of Ephesians as we look into his word, look into what God has done, not only for us, but he has done for his own glory. If we look into the scriptures, we start this book that Paul has written what is called a prison epistle, a letter to the Ephesians about who they are and how they're to behave in light of who they are, the actions that they're to take because of what God has done and the riches God has given to them. So we begin this book in Ephesians. We'll be reading from verses 1 through 14, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ things in the heavens and things on the earth in him also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory in him you also after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we come before your holy word. We pray, God, that it might be divided rightly. You would be exalted that we might know you and love you all the more for what you have done. May you be blessed and praised in your son's precious name. Amen. There are a number of people in America, even in difficult times, that are wealthy, but they simply don't know it. There's an article that was printed in the Chicago Tribune a few years ago entitled, The Mystery of the Missing Owner. It was actually published by the Illinois State Treasurer's Office and they sought to give away money to its rightful owners. The contents of abandoned safe deposit boxes, forgotten bank accounts, security deposit checks, uncashed paychecks, dividend checks, etc. More than a billion dollars worth is owed to nearly five million people and businesses that the treasurer's office could not trace. And that's only in that particular state. The front page of the supplement listed names and the last known addresses of ten individuals or couples each owed over $100,000 that left unclaimed. And that's in every single state in our country. That is, that there are people that have left things unclaimed. 113,000 names, over 116 pages in the Chicago Tribune. We're all owed more than $100 in cash or stock or whatnot. Some people simply don't know about the funds that have been left behind. Others, however, perhaps they know but they're too miserly to spend. They're rich, but they don't want to spend anything. America's greatest miser, or some people might use other words for that, was known as Hetty Green. You can find her name on Wikipedia. Having been known as America's greatest miser, she was said to never turn on the heat or use hot water. She wore one black dress and undergarments and didn't change them until they wore out. She didn't wash her hands and she rolled an old carriage. She lived about a hundred years ago. She ate mostly pies that only cost 15 cents and it was said that she spent one entire night looking for a stamp that was worth two cents that she had lost. It's sad to say that when her son had a leg injury that was very severe. She took so long trying to find a clinic that would help him for free that his leg had to be amputated because of an advanced infection. The amazing thing, though, about her was that she was a shark on Wall Street. When she died in 1916, she left behind an estate worth $100 million, a huge sum back then. But you see, many Christians perhaps are are like that. They either don't know about the wealth that they have in God or they have it but they never access it. They never look to God and they never realized how wealthy they are in Christ beyond their imagination of what God has done for them. And all of the things that we have as Christians, instead they live life running around in anxiety and worry or insecurity, looking for love, looking for peace, looking for that peace that's inside that they simply don't have. They're wracked by fear or perhaps trapped in their own little world looking for advice from what the world might have to give them. When God has given to us all of these things, the love that we need, the significance that we need, and the, the joy that we can have, the peace that transcends all understanding. In fact, this is what verse 3 says here. Blessed be God who has given us what? Blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ." He's given to us every spiritual blessing. In fact, that reminds me of 2 Peter 1 verse 3, which tells us what that seeing that His divine power has what? Granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything that you need to live a Christian life, to live a godly life, everything that you need to have joy and peace to have the patience that you need, to have that kind of self-control to overcome various sins that you might have, everything that you need, wisdom from God, etc., has been given to us. And it's a matter of us looking to God and looking to His Word and asking Him to help us to take these treasures that He has given to us and to live by them Our significance, you see, doesn't come because of the grades that we get in school. It doesn't come because of the type of profession that we're in. It doesn't become uh, the, well, this is the type of school that I've attended, an Ivy League school. It doesn't come because of the amount of money I make or the grades that I have or the talents that I have or whether or not people like me or don't like me. My significance comes because God has said and declared, you know what? You and I are children of God and we have inherited many things because of that. That's where our significance has come. All because of what God has done. And in this book, Paul lays out for us our identity. Who we are, what God has done, who we used to be and who we are to be like. And so in the first three chapters in this book, he tells us of all of the great doctrines of God, the truth of who we are. And then he tells us in the last three chapters how we're to live. Many people want to live and just tell me what to do. Just tell me how to live. Just tell me what I'm supposed to do here. But they don't know that, you know what, it all stems, if you want to have an enduring life that will be lived for Christ, you've got to know why you're doing what you're doing. And that's what Paul lays out here, to understand who we are as Christians, the truth about what God has done. And so Paul, as he writes this book, he writes this book, it's called the Prison Epistle. This is one of the prison epistles, and he wrote four of them during his first Roman imprisonment. He was imprisoned more than once. He wrote uh, Ephesians there in this first prison epistle. He wrote Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, all while he was in prison. And when he was in prison, when we say that, it's not as if he was chained to some wall and in some damp dungeon where he was fed watered-down oatmeal. He was there and he was in their house arrest able to have some freedom, able to have visitors. He was under a Roman guard and he could minister with some semblance of freedom as long as he stayed within that rented quarters of his. And his purpose of writing this was to encourage the Ephesian church, possibly to have it circulated among other churches in the future. That was his purpose, to encourage them and to tell them about various things such as who they are. And how they're to live. He tells them about the unity of the mystery of the church. That it was not just Jews that were going to be a part of God's chosen people. But it was also going to be non-Jews or Gentiles that were going to be included within God's church. He talks to them about spiritual warfare and other things as well. And he was very familiar with this church that he was going to write to or that he wrote to this church at Ephesus, because he had spent three years there. He had spent three years there in this major city in Asia Minor on his first missionary trip. When he went there, this was his base of operations. It was a major city. It was a city that had its own harbor to the Castor River. In fact, in Asia Minor, to the Romans, it was the capital city. It was at the intersection of major trade routes in a city of commerce, a financial center. It held the, 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 uh, the great temple to be dedicated to the Roman goddess Diana or the Greek goddess Artemis. It was an important city and there he made his base of operations. For three years he was there ministering and the church at Ephesus flourished. And they were doctrinally sound and they were a strong church for a long time. And there Paul wrote to this church and he wanted to encourage them. And he wrote to them and in the initial salutation he says here, Paul, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by God's will, not my own. To all of those who are saints, he says, those who are Christians, there at Ephesus. So he's writing to believers. He's writing to believers there who are faithful. And he gives them a standard greeting. And then he begins on what God has done. What God has done and why you and I are special to God. What God has done in this verses 3 all the way to 14. Do you realize that in the Greek text this is all one long sentence? In your Bibles, when you look at this sentence, I mean, verses 3 all the way to 14, you probably have a dozen or more sentences there. But in the text that Paul wrote, it is one long doxology, or one long praise, one long blessing. That's what it means when he says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to bless God? I mean, we think about that. When we say, God has blessed me, what do we mean? We, we mean God has given to me a good health, a good job. He's given to me a peace and joy. He's given to me so many things. He's given me a fellowship and friends. He's given me a family, etc. God has blessed me in many ways. What does it mean to bless God though? What does it mean to bless God? I can't give any of those things to God. But to bless someone means that we do give them something. And what is it that we give God? We give God praise and worship we give god thanks we give god all of these things and that was that is what paul does here when he says blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ he's saying praise god thank god i worship god because of all of these things it's sad to say you know some christians they have a hard time being grateful they have a hard time praising god because they think of Blessings in terms of what we think of material things, my circumstances in life, my, my family or my income, my job, my school, my, my grades or whatever it might be. They have a hard time praising God because our circumstances stifle that. And yet, Paul, what he does here is he gives thanks and praise to God and he gives us a reason why God is to be forever praised. The first thing that he says here is that we are to praise God because God has elected or chosen you and me. He's chosen us individually. And that's what we'll look at today we look at verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, before we begin into this idea of being chosen or elected or the subject of predestination, we need to understand that there are two particular or two primary views when it comes to the subject of election and predestination. One is that some believe in an unconditional individual election, unconditional individual election. And that's often associated with something called Calvinism. Those who are Calvinists believe that God is completely sovereign in all things, including salvation. That God is in control of all things and nothing ever comes to pass outside of God's control, even in the arena of salvation. That God is also sovereign, having elected people or chosen you before the foundation of the world and predestined you, meaning the path that you are going to take to be saved. John R. W. Stott writes in his book, The Message of Ephesians, writes, quote, Now everybody finds the doctrine of election difficult. Did I not choose God? Someone asks indignantly, to which we must answer, yes, indeed you did, and freely, but only because in eternity God had first chosen you. Didn't I decide for Christ? asks somebody else, to which we must reply, yes. Indeed, you did, and freely, but only because in eternity God had first decided for you. Calvinists believe that we do choose God, but it's only because God enables us to choose Him. John 6.44 is key when it says this, No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. In other words, I can't come to God unless God draws me first. And they would argue and point that out as a Calvinist would. There's another view other than the unconditional individual election. There is the conditional individual election. Conditioned upon our choice. That would be called the Arminian view, theologically. And Arminianism believes that God looks into the future, perhaps eons down, thousands of years later, and He sees each individual, and He sees the decision that they will make. And based upon their decision that they will make, God elects or He chooses them in response and saves that individual. It is conditioned upon man's choice. It is conditioned upon what man will do. And the rationale is that if God so controls that choice, as in Calvinism, it would not be a true and valid or legitimate choice. Therefore, they would say that a true choice needs to be independent of God's control. That God, if he dictated that, then it would not be a true choice. They may say that choosing and predestination are also a part of God's plan, but it's conditioned upon our choice of God. And to them, that makes the most sense, that seems the most rational. The question at hand, though, in fact, the primary question that has to be asked is not what makes the most sense or what is the most rational, nor is it what is the most logical. Although these are significant and important secondary questions. I mean, if we were to ask a question like that and make it the primary one, like this is the most rational, this makes the most sense, then you know what? We would land in the category of many who deny even the miracles of the Bible. For none of those make rational sense either. How can a blind man see all of a sudden like that? How can Jesus be God? How can the Trinity exist, etc.? The primary question at hand is, what does the Scriptures teach? What does the Bible teach? So we look carefully here in this text to see about the subject of choice or election and predestination. And we look here in verse 4. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. Here in this text, it spells out fairly clearly that what? God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And secondly, in love, He predestined us. You see, before we were born, before we were conceived, before our country was founded, before Adam and Eve, before this world was even created, God chose you and I to be saved. The doctrine of election focuses, when we talk about these two words, in choosing and predestination, it speaks of choosing, focusing on the individual. Predestination has to do with the plan for your life. He predestined you to adoption as sons, He elected you to salvation. He chose you before you chose Him. Here God chose us to be His children before the creation of the world. After we were elected, we were predestined to adoption as children of God. And the question here that must be asked is this. Upon what basis are we elected or chosen? Is it unconditional, as the Calvinists would say, or is it conditioned upon our choice? Upon what basis are we predestined? Upon what basis did these things occur? And the Bible tells us that He predestined us according to what? Verse 5. According to the kind intention of His will. The emphasis on God's will, God's desires, and God's plan is emphasized again in verse 9, according to the kind intention of His will, emphasized again in verse 11. This entire doxology is on what God has done, all that God has dictated, or all that God has planned. And it's important to note what it does not say as well. If Paul were to be of an Arminian persuasion... Would it not be more clear if that He would have said instead, according to the kind or the intention of our will? Would it not be more clear if the Scriptures had that persuasion of an Arminian perspective to say that He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world That what? It would be according to the kind intention of our desires, or according to our choice, or according to what he would have seen us choose. It would have been so much more clear if he had said something like that, but he doesn't. In fact, he says it is according to whose will? According to God's. The idea that God chose us or elected people is again repeated in the book of Romans. If you turn back in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 9, a key passage having to do with election to salvation or predestination to God's sovereign choice is found in Romans 9. The entire chapter is focused on the subject of salvation. Romans chapter 9, verse 11. And not only this, In speaking of the children of rebecca there was rebecca also verse 11 of chapter 9 when she had conceived twins by one man our father isaac for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad in other words there was nothing that they had done whether good or bad so that god's purpose according to his choice or Some versions say His election or God's purpose of election. According to that, according to God's choice, would stand not because of works, but because of Him who calls. In other words, it's not because of anything they had done, but because of Him who calls. The emphasis is on God. God who calls. Previous clause Because of God's choice, it was said, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This emphasis is all across this doxology, as well as Romans chapter 9, that the focus is on what God has done, God's choice, God's election, repeated again according to His will, according to His purpose, according to Him, that all glory might go to God. If the Arminian view were true in Romans 9, it would have been so much more clear had they said something like God's purpose according to their choice would stand because of Him who calls. But instead, there is no reference to anything that we would have done in order that we might take credit to pat ourselves on the back, perhaps, to say, I chose God. But God, it is said, chose us before the foundation of the world and He predestined us to be called children of God, adopted as sons in Jesus Christ. So you say, do I have a choice? The answer is, as John R. W. Stott mentions, yes, we do. Why? Because the Bible presents it like that. When Jesus says in Matthew eleven, twenty eight, he says, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, he's asking us to make a decision, to make a choice. Do we have a free will? And the answer is yes and no. It depends on how you define the word free. Because our will and our choice is never a neutral thing. We come to a decision. We don't come to a decision as purely a neutral, with, with a neutral heart, as a neutral creature making a decision for good or for evil. The Bible presents us as people who were conceived as Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin my mother conceived me. So here in my heart, as soon as I'm born, my heart is inclined to sin. It is influenced by sin and I'm inclined to do everything to my own good and not for the glory of God. So of course my will is not free. It is in bondage to sin. And even when we get to Ephesians 2, it'll tell us we were children of wrath. We were enslaved to our own lusts, it says. Only now that we're free in Christ as Christians, we have a freedom to do that which is right. But we never come to a decision in life. Whether it's to come to, to, to salvation as a purely neutral creature who is uninfluenced either internally or externally. It is a limited freedom that we have. Not like God's freedom. It is a limited freedom. So we do have a free will. We do have choice. Depending on how you define it, it is a limited freedom. But is God also sovereign over all things and in control of all things? Yes, in fact, God is sovereign. In fact, when you look at Ephesians, once again, you look at verse 11. It says, also we have obtained an inheritance having again predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. All things. Inclusive of my decisions and the things that I do. Who works all things. And we think of Romans 8.28. When he says, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. And who are called according to His purpose. But you say to yourself, well, now this doesn't make logical sense. You say, how can my choice or the exercise of my free will be a true and legitimate choice? If God controls all things at the same time, the answer is because the Bible says that it is. The Bible presents it as it is. The Bible says that we have that freedom of choice, that we are to make a decision. And the Bible also says that God is a sovereign God. And the question is not, does that make rational sense? And I understand every part of it. The question and the primary question is, what does the scriptures present? What does the Bible teach about the sovereignty of God and the free will of man? It teaches that we have both the sovereignty of God and the limited free will. And we are to accept that just as we accept all of the other truths of Jesus being fully God and fully man and that Jesus performed all of the miracles that he does and he will rise, he has risen and he reigns right now and we believe by faith all of those things. The ideas of freedom of the will and the choices that we make and the sovereignty of God are defined by the word of God. And so I accept them, whether or not I truly and fully understand all of those things. For God has chosen us. And what did He predestine us to? The text tells us. He predestined us to adoption as sons, verse 5, through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will. Most of you don't know what it's like to be an orphan. But I remember this testimony that was given by a woman. It's written in an article entitled, Meet the Jesus I Know. And it reads this way. Shortly after the Korean War, a Korean woman had an affair with an American soldier. And she got pregnant. She went back to the United States and she never saw him again. He did. She gave birth to a little girl and this little girl looked different than the other Korean children. She had light-colored, curly hair. In that culture, children of mixed race were ostracized by the community. In fact, many women would kill their children because they didn't want them to face such rejection. But this woman didn't want to do that. She tried to raise her little girl as best as she could. For seven years, she tried to do that until the rejection was too much. She did something that probably no one in this room could imagine ever doing. She abandoned her little girl to the streets. This little girl was ruthlessly taunted by people. They called her the ugliest word, perhaps in the Korean language meaning alien devil. It didn't take long for this little girl to draw conclusions about herself based upon the way that people treated her. For two years, she lived in the streets till finally she made her way to an orphanage. One day, word came that a couple from America was coming to the orphanage. They were going to adopt a little boy. All the children in the orphanage got excited because at least one little boy was going to have hope. He was going to have a family. So this little girl spent the day cleaning up the little boy's giving them baths and combing their hair and wondering which one would be adopted by the American couple. The next day, the couple came, and this is what the girl recalled. Quote, It was like Goliath had come back to life. I saw the man with his huge hands lift up each and every baby. I knew he loved every one of them as if they were his own. I saw tears running down his face. And I knew if they could, they would have taken the whole lot home with them. He saw me out of the corner of his eye. Now let me tell you, I was nine years old. But I didn't even weigh thirty pounds. I was a scrawny thing. I had worms in my body. I had lice in my hair. I had boils all over me. I was full of scars. I was not a pretty sight. But the man came over to me and he began rattling away something in English and I looked up at him. Then he took his huge hand and laid it on my face. What was he saying? He was saying, I want this child. This is the child for me. Unquote. That is what God did to us. We were people who were lost in our own sin, with boils and scars, with lice in our hair because of the sin in our heart. We were orphans, not part of a family. We were separated from God and had not known the love of God. And yet God came. And one day he chose you and he said, I want this child. This child is for me. There was a couple over at my home yesterday. They were talking about adoption, the expenses involved, the challenges. Because adoptions cost tens of thousands of dollars to adopt a child. Waiting years, mounds of paperwork, a lot of prayers. Imagine if you were an adopted parent having gone through tremendous waiting in pain and personal sacrifice, waiting for that child to come. How would you feel if the child that you adopted was rebellious or ungrateful? Was a selfish child who felt that you were in the way of their plans for life. And they said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Why did God choose us? The Bible says that we were chosen, it says here in the text, to be holy, to be blameless, to be for the praise of the glory of His grace which He bestowed on us. And we were chosen to be people who are separate, to be pure, to live life like God desires us to live and to please Him, not in the lust of our own desires, not in our own sin, not in our own selfishness, and to say, God, I don't have time for you. heard this woman's testimony on the radio on focus on the family the one that was adopted this little Korean girl she now lives in the states she tells her testimony for the glory of God she testifies of his goodness of how she was rescued and how she was the one who was blessed by God and she blesses God in return Because one day God came into your life when you became a Christian and said, I want this child. This child is for me. Let's pray. Father, we can only imagine what it must be like. Many father here have no idea what it is like to be an orphan, to be without parents. But perhaps there are some here that do know. Regardless, O God, all of us know what it is to be without you. For one day, O God, you by your grace, in eternity past, chose us destined us to be called children of God. And Father, as children of God, as princes and princesses of the great King, may we love you and serve you, spend time with you and adore you, worship you from the bottom of our heart, Father, for you have lavished your grace upon us. And may we live up to the calling which we have received.